software engineering is a deterministic field. We write lines of code and feed data into that code, expecting to get a certain answer. Computing is deterministic because humans developed it. We understand computers from top to bottom. The same cannot be said about biology. Matt Might is an associate professor with a PhD in computer science. When his son was diagnosed with an extremely rare illness, Matt was confronted with the uncertainties of human biology. In this episode, we discuss Matt's quest to solve the puzzle of his son's disease, Computer Science Meets Genetics, on this episode of Software Engineering Daily. If you're a fan of Software Engineering Daily, please tell us how to improve. Fill out our listener survey on our website or in our newsletter. There are links in both of those places. We would love to know what you think. We would love to know what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of. We listen to all of the feedback that we get, so please fill out the survey on softwareengineeringdaily.com or in our newsletter. Matt Might is an associate professor with a PhD in computer science. He's currently on sabbatical as a visiting professor at Harvard Medical School. Matt, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. Good to be here. Scientists and engineers are always experimenting, and experimenting often means performing tests and assessing the data across a large population of sample cases. But you've talked about how to approach a scientific situation when the experimental population has a sample size of one. And this idea became important to you because your son was diagnosed with an extremely rare disease. Before the birth of your son, had you done much thinking about how to assess scientific situations with an extremely low sample size? Uh, well, that, that's that's a great question. And before, prior to my son, uh, not really per se, although in some sense, I did a little bit of that already in computer science. Um, so my, my native research in computer science was actually in areas like static analysis and program optimization, uh, largely applied to functional programming languages. So languages like Haskell or, or Racket, um, and believe it or not, it was it was difficult at times to find large code bases to apply our techniques to. So we often had to infer that they would scale if they could scale on larger code bases. Um, you know, from looking at how they behaved on smaller program fragments. Um, so it, it, instead of like looking at data in the aggregate, we were looking at uh, how well it performed very specifically um, and exactly what it was able to infer about a particular program. Um, so yeah, no, before that, no, I, I, not, not, you know, it's certainly not in a medical context, uh, certainly not in a broader scientific context. I had sort of a little bit of experience with it in my, in my native research in in computer science. Uh, and, and, and in fact, you know, we, you say it was, it was very rare, but to be clear, it was so rare that he was literally the first case ever discovered. Um, so that's, that's about as rare as it gets. Uh, now, we, we've since discovered more cases of it around the world, but it's still one of the rarest diseases on the planet. Certainly um, not big enough to ever have the kind of sample sizes that you would need to draw the levels of statistical confidence that a, a regulatory agency like FDA would want if they were to approve a drug for it. After your son's birth, there was a four-year period where your son was suffering and it was suffering from a mysterious condition, and there was nothing that doctors or scientists could do to provide information. Did this experience make you question any of your fundamental beliefs about the effectiveness of science? Uh, 
Well, well, it's, it certainly had me questioning beliefs uh, in, in in general. Uh, though ultimately, the entire process has been a confirmation about you know, the, you know really the importance of science. Um, what it, I mean, where a lot of my beliefs were questioned were on on the modern medical system and how, in, in many ways, I well, what I came to, to realize is that modern medicine is fantastic at treating the average. Um, you know, it's it's set up to treat the general population. And if you happen to be one of these these rare cases, it's really not set up for you. Um, and and yet, you know, it will almost act as if it is. I mean, we just you know we tend to place a tremendous amount of trust in, in physicians, uh, and, and most of the time, rightly so. Um, but there's a problem when you when you enter into a, you know areas of disease this rare, where oftentimes the medical system won't won't admit the limitations of its own knowledge uh, and doesn't really have a path for patients like my son to take. And it's not like my son is the only one. There's a lot of rare and undiagnosed patients out there. And uh, I, I've heard now that uh, from places like the Undiagnosed Diseases Network that the average length of an undiagnosed odyssey where you're looking for an answer is seven years. So when you get into the rare disease, it can take a very long time to finally figure out what it exactly you have. Um, so I certainly question my, my beliefs and in, in, in the trust I placed in, in modern medicine, um, at least in the, the way it's delivered currently. I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of room for improvement there. But in science itself, um, you know, I know you're always dealing with the threat of, of you know, the unknown. Um, I mean, that's really what science does. I mean, you, we, we stand out there at the boundary and we, we shovel away and we push and, and try to figure out more stuff. Uh, and there's always the risk that you're going to end up being the very first case of some brand new disorder. I mean, it, it has to happen to somebody. It happened to happen to my son. Um, and uh, it, to, to me, actually, to watch that, that process of discovery take place uh, was, was really inspiring. Mm. So when doctors figured out that your son was an N of one, as you call it, a unique case, they said things like, this case is not actionable. And I think this gets to what you're saying about fitting outside of the average, being an outlier when, uh, when you're uh, engaging in treatment. So what was the basis for the claim of the doctors saying that this case was not actionable? Yeah, so, so actionability is actually, it's, it's one of these terms that's somewhat well-defined within, within medicine. And essentially, if there's no pill you can take or no procedure available, then it's considered not actionable. You know, if, if there's nothing that medicine can offer you in the advent of a diagnosis, they call it a not actionable diagnosis. Or sometimes they'll say there's no clinical utility in the diagnosis because there's nothing that the medical establishment itself can do for you at the time. Um, and uh, I, I take strong exception to that at this point because I, I, I think that you know, science itself should be included as an action that you can take in the event of a diagnosis. So... You disagreed with the idea of this case not being actionable. And you've said that in the absence of any traditional medication, which uh, is an example of this type of situation, they didn't have a traditional medical solution. So in the absence of any traditional medication, science becomes the medicine. What do you mean by this? Science becomes the medicine. So by that, I mean, uh, you get to begin the process of understanding uh, the disease if, if it's not understood as, as it was in this case. And if it, if it is somewhat understood, then you can begin the process of, of actually doing the bench science necessary to develop uh, drugs and treatments. So for example, with a brand new disease, the first thing we did was, well, you know, there's n- literally nothing known about this. So we have to do some basic cell biology to start understanding what we're dealing with. Uh, and more in particular, what we're not dealing with. 
you know, there was a lot of hypotheses about what this disorder could be doing and what it you know, might be doing. And so we, we had to start testing those hypotheses. Uh, so we began collaborating with a glycobiologist out at uh, Stanford Burnham Research Institute in San Diego named Hudson Freeze. And, uh, you know, he allowed us to sort of, you know, again, start not only testing this hypothesis, but putting more hypotheses out there to say, you know, we think this could be a mechanism in this or, or this, or maybe this isn't. Um, so yeah, the, the first step, you know, for, for us, and I think for many of these ultra rare diseases is to start to understand, to unlock the mechanism of harm. And, and the mechanism of harm, it's really a chain uh, that begins with the initial genetic insult and ends with the high-level symptoms you see in the patient. And in between, you know, that initial genetic problem and, and those symptoms, there's a long chain of causes. Like, you know, in my son's case, you know, the, the genetic change causes an accumulation of glycoproteins. Um, and, you know, it actually causes a very specific kind of accumulation of glycoproteins we now know, and that the kind of accumulation does appear to matter. So, uh, you know, and realizing that the kind of accumulation matters has allowed us to develop therapeutic strategies based on that fact. So at first, I would say science is, is doing the basic cell biology, doing very basic science, just to, just to get a sense of what's actually happening. And at, over time, you'll start to see opportunities emerge um, that, that could uh, paint the way towards therapies. And there's, there's other more general things you can do, too. Um, so you can do classic drug development, but uh, miniaturized for an individual patient uh, or for a very small patient population. And uh, the first stage of that is really to look for what are called phenotypic modifiers or to find uh, drug targets, which in this case would be mostly genes, that when you uh, interact with them in some way, they modify the disorder. Uh, and, and, and you can either make it better or worse. So if you find a gene, for example, that, you know, when, when, when shut down happens to make the disorder better, uh, then you have a suppressor target. So you, you want to try to find an inhibitor or an antagonist or whatever the case may be for that particular gene to try to knock its activity down under the understanding that that will actually help the disorder. You know, conversely, you might find that some genes, when, when overactivated, actually help the disorder. And so in those cases, you want to find compounds that will overactivate those genes. Um, and there's a, there's a number of techniques you can do to even identify what these other genes might be. So there's, there's several kinds of modifier screens you can do. Uh, when you've got a brand new disease. And so that's, a, that's another kind of science you can do right off the bat when you discover a brand new disorder. And we really did both in parallel. We started looking for modifiers and we started trying to understand the basic cell biology right from the get-go. So when it comes to the modern uh, experiment process of trying to find uh, a, you know, some genetic uh, clues or some, some genes to target, what, what is at the at the cutting edge of, of this type of process, like as you've, as you've engaged with scientists and researchers and engineers about this problem, what kinds of technical, uh, improvements, software, hardware, um, are you seeing on this front? Uh, well, that's a great question. So I think it's, it's amazing how fast things have changed in just the past few years, even, um, you know, the development of CRISPR, I think is, is definitely a game changer when it comes to, uh, working on the biological side. So CRISPR is, is a fantastic gene editing technology. And, and the way I would present that to a software engineering person is imagine that you have Emacs for your genome. Um, that's, that's CRISPR. I mean, you can go in and make whatever modification you want um, to an individual cell. It doesn't work in people yet, but it does work fantastic for creating model organisms where you want to mock up uh, a disease in a model organism. 
And model organisms, I think, are still one of the best ways to do a, less, a modifier screen. Uh, I, I think I, I, I can t- mention a couple ways to do this with a computer, but you know, in many ways, nature is still the, the fastest computer we have when it comes to studying disease. So if you want to find uh, a gene that might have an effect on the disorder you care about, which you can do, and there's, again, there's several ways to do this, but one of them is first you create a model organism like a worm or a fly that has the genetic disorder you care about. And then you can either systematically start knocking out fractions of, of that model organism's genome to see if suddenly it gets better. You know, so if you knock out some fraction of uh, the, like a fly's genome that has a particular genetic disorder and it gets better instead of worse, then you, you form a hypothesis and you say, well, maybe there's a gene in that region that actually, uh, if we take it out, makes the disorder better. And you can try to zero in on what that gene is. Um, so there are existing libraries of flies which have you know, come pre- you know, basically preloaded with large fractions of their genome knocked out in a, in a, in a, in a defined way. So you can cross your fly that has a, a genetic disorder or as a carrier for it with these and end up um, you know, effectively screening every, every fragment of the genome to see if there might be a modifier there. Uh, and you can do similar things in zebrafish or in worms. Again, depending on, on what model organism you have, there might be uh, other ways of doing this. The other way to do it is to you know, create uh, an organism with a genetic disorder and then blast it with mutagenic agents. Um, and again, you're not making just one organism. Obviously, you're making many. And if some of these organisms start to get better after they've been uh, exposed to something that's mutating their genome, then you say, oh, well, let's go backwards. Let's sequence them and find out what we did to it that made it better. So there's, there's a couple ways you can go about looking for modifiers at the bench. Uh, computationally, there's actually a lot you can do now. And again, this is all stuff that's only becoming possible uh, quite recently with the advent of cheaply available genomes. So one project that we're, we're working on here at the University of Utah is going to uh, combine all of the genomic data we have on all the, the, the known NGLI1 patients to date and um, we're going to score each patient according to their, uh, essentially the severity of their presentation with the disorder. And uh, there's software that can actually then look for the genes that are um, modifying uh, the, uh, the disorder that way. Because every, you know, no, no patient is, is identical to any other patient for almost any disorder. And when you get a spectrum of, of severity and disorder like we do with, uh, with, with my sons, uh, then you can reasonably assume that it's due to either environment or other, other genetic factors. And so it's hard to account for environment, but certainly if there are other genetic factors influencing a disorder, you can try to hunt those down, um, as a giant data science experiment. Um, and so that's another interesting thing to point out is that even though we have a very small amount of, of patients, we're not data poor. We have a tremendously large amount of data per patient this, at this point. So this process of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, it seems almost kind of like a random walk and then you look for something that works and then you work backwards to determine why it works. Um, does this ever feel like a, uh, like a process that is more non-deterministic than, than it need, fundamentally needs to be? Uh, you know, that's, that's a great question. So that, yeah, you're right. There's, there's a, a tremendous amount of, um, you know, uh, stochasticism, if you will, in, in the process. Uh, 
not quite, totally not deterministic. Because, but you know, you, you certainly um, you're going to get drawn in a certain way based on. Or it's like NP complete. Like, it's, yeah, it's not not non-deterministic, but like it's it's so big that you, we couldn't explore it in a, a billion lifetimes. Well, that's abs- that's absolutely true. Uh, it's like when you get into drug development, people will talk about what they call chemical space. You know, the space of all possible molecules that could be a drug, and. Uh, I, I, I forget the number for how many there could be, but it, it's just enormous. I mean, the number of ways that you can rearrange, you know, simple um, organic compounds uh, is is just staggering. Um, you know, it's it's you know one one of these you know very very large numbers. And so, we know in advance that humanity is never going to be able to search out all of chemical space in a systematic fashion. You know, we have to do some kind of of you know heuristic search or probabilistic search or uh, of this space as we attempt to map uh, diseases to drugs um, and just I don't know if it will ever be totally deterministic. Uh, I think we're always going to have to rely on an element of um, you know to some degree random exploration, but hopefully guided random exploration so that we're we're trying to move in a, in a, a direction that our intuition tells us might be a reasonable place to go. So I'm not an expert on deep learning, but We've done some shows about deep learning, and one of the characteristics, as I understand about deep learning, I could be wrong, is that it's this process of uh, oftentimes you're searching for a solution, you have this objective function you're trying to optimize, but oftentimes you end up with a solution, you don't exactly know why your solution works, all you know is that it works. Um, And, uh, you know, this is a fascinating, extremely powerful set of tools, but um, you know, I'm curious if you understand much about the space and, and have any idea how it could be uh, sort of transitioned from the, the, the bit world to the atom world, to, to use the buzzword phraseology of it. Sure. So I'm not an expert in machine learning and, and not in deep learning. I understand it about as well as, as, as you do probably. In, in, in the Does that sound that, accurate, what I said? Yeah, it sounds accurate uh, okay. from, from my understanding. And like, you know, I've, I, you know, once upon a time back as an undergrad, I played with uh, neural networks and things like that. So I, I have the general idea of what's going on here. Uh, and yeah, the, the, there's, there's I also understand the complaint that, you know, when it gives you back an answer, you know, you can, you can recognize that it's, it's right or that it's good. But it's very hard for it to explain why uh, that was a reasonable answer. Um, and so I've, I've actually, I do have a graduate student working on using machine learning techniques, not even deep learning yet, um, to understand uh, and it, you know, to build classifiers for uh, glycogenes and things like this. And even, even before you get to deep learning, it can be sometimes difficult to understand what the model is telling you. Uh, like when it, when it synthesizes, you know, a, a set of weights to do classification and you try to look at those weights and make sense of, of what, of like how it learned what it learned, even, you know, it, 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 even that can be challenging. Um, you know, we were trying to do tissue type identification by looking at levels of gene expression. And eventually we figured out that the way it had taught itself to recognize tissues was by to recognize what tissues it wasn't. Um, if that makes any sense, because uh, it was just all these large negative weights uh, to, to penalize all, you know, most tissue types. Uh, so that as, as opposed to giving very positive scores to markers of what the tissue actually was. Um, so that that was that was an interesting finding when we when we looked at that. Um, but there's actually there, you know, there's an there's an analog to you know drug development. You you would be maybe shocked to learn that there's a lot of drugs out there where we have no idea how they do what they do. Uh, or very little idea of how they do uh, what they do, um, and and that's because 
you know, there, there's sort of two ways to go about this. You can be very principled and, and try to rationally design a drug to do exactly what you want once you've identified a, a, a target. Or you can do broad compound screens where you can test millions of compounds against some model or some cell uh, with respect to a test that tells you whether or not it might work. And then you get some hits. And you may have literally no idea why it does what it does. All you know is that it does the thing you wanted it to do. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the generate and test approach uh, is, is very popular in modern drug development where you literally just blast the disease with millions of compounds in, in dishes, um, hoping that something makes a difference in a recognizable way. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. I, I've, I've experienced this in the domain of psychiatry where, like, uh, I was, you know, I was in a psychiatrist's office, like, discussing medication and his way of explaining how the medication worked was, like, drawing you know, uh, you know, on the X axis was time and on the Y axis was like mood as if these are (laughs) like, this is an abstraction that actually makes any sort of scientific sense. And then just like, you know, drawing the graph of here's how your behavior looks uh, before the drug. And here's how your behavior looks after the drug. Uh, And that's, that's the best they could do. That's no, uh, that's not me like criticizing science that's like literally the best that they could do right now yeah it, it is i mean so so actually you, you bring up you know there's certain areas of drug development which are just enormously complicated on top of the the already big challenges they have and one of them is uh psychiatric drugs because suppose you do want to do a lot of testing um how wh- what is your test what if what, what if you're looking at cells or, or what if you're looking at, at lab mice in the early days how do you know if it's having any kind of psychiatric effect at all um yeah, measuring the effectiveness of drugs is incredibly difficult to do uh, in many spaces, and especially so when you get into drugs that are supposed to to make a difference for our mind. Right. Um, so I want to talk more about the story of your son. So after your son was diagnosed, uh, you know, you kind of took this matter into your own hands because you, you kind of it was not actionable according to the doctors or the researchers. And you decided to talk to the top researchers in the field, and you resolved to research and work on finding a treatment for your son. And you reasoned that there were, you know, probably like 500 other people living with this rare condition that your son had, and you realized that you couldn't solve this problem alone. So you made a blog post that was designed to go viral, and you ended up finding a lot of people because of that blog post. And and once you had a group of like 35 people identified, you could start to do some more natural experiments. Uh, you started to gather biomarkers. So um, give, me, give me an idea of, of what this process was like. After you started to have some people, you started to be able to gather some data. Um, when did you get into the high-throughput drug screening process? Uh, well, that, that's, that's a great question. So we're actually... We're, we're still on the threshold of high-throughput drug screening. Um, we, we have an assay that can detect whether the, the enzymatic activity of the missing enzyme is present again, um, but we think it's highly unlikely that any molecule would somehow magically bring back uh, that activity. So what we're looking at now are ways, uh, well, we're, lo- we're looking at sort of higher-level mechanistic assays to see if we can influence, say, the seizure phenotype. Um, and that looks like it'll be a much better basis for doing something high throughput where we would scale to, to millions of molecules. And in, in lieu of doing high throughput, we've been doing very targeted uh, drug screens instead, um, where, we, where we have a proposed way it's going to influence the mechanism or some mechanism of harm. Uh, and then we can check to see if it actually does that. Uh, but, but yeah, when, once, once we got patients, uh, you know, 
it, it taught us a lot. So first of all, it taught us that everybody presents with this disorder, this, this disorder slightly differently. There are no two patients that are exactly alike. I mean, there's a, there is definitely a core set of symptoms of this disorder uh, that, that all patients share in common. Um, but you know, when it was just my son, we didn't know what was really the core of the disorder and what was unique to him because of his own genetic variation. And, you know, right off the bat, it's important to figure out what's the core of a disorder, because if you spend your time treating stuff that's on the periphery, um, then at best you're going to get sort of skin deep in actually treating the disorder. Whereas if you focus on the stuff that's fundamental to the disorder, then you're starting to influence, you know, deeper levels in this chain of mechanism. And it's actually, it's really important uh, for drug development to understand what that core is so that you can do proper, so that you can address it as deeply as, pol- uh, as, as possible. Um, but one thing that, that happened also from getting a lot of patients is we started to realize that, yes, there is an actual spectrum of patients. And uh, some had had different experiences medically and, and also um, in, ter- in terms of their, their genetic background. So uh, one of the patients, for example, had had a liver transplant because in addition to having this ultra-rare disease, he also had liver cancer. And he went from having uh, essentially around-the-clock seizures before the transplant to not a single seizure afterward. Um, so obviously that, get, that got everybody's attention. And the more we've pushed on this, the more we've started to realize that, you know, was, the initial thought was, oh, well, maybe everyone needs a new liver. Because, um, you know, it's possible to do that uh, for all the patients, but it's a very dangerous thing to do. So you, you don't want to do it unless you really have to. So we said, well, so let's see if we can understand why this might happen. And then we started to realize that it might not actually be the liver transplant at all. Uh, it could actually be the particular immunosuppressant that this child was on. Um, it turns out that the immunosuppressant he's on upregulates a process called autophagy, which is an alternate way of clearing out some kinds of cellular waste. And since this disorder is fundamentally uh, a breakdown of a pathway that handles cellular waste, it looks like you know th- this is a possibly way to actually compensate for that. Now, the downside is, the, you know, the immunosuppressant he's on, you would never, I mean, it's, it's not as awful as a liver transplant, but you certainly would not want to go on it unless you had a really good reason to, because you're going to get sick all the time. Um, it's just, it's, it's not, a, not a fun lifestyle once you go on to it. So we're looking for other compounds that could also induce the same process of autophagy. Um, and we're actually trying to test those in model systems to see if these less harsh compounds could provide the same degree of benefit. Now, if they can't, then maybe there's something else about this immunosuppressant that's doing it too, or maybe it really is the liver transplant. But at the moment, we think that this patient has, has sort of shown us a way, a possible way of actually treating the disorder through this alternate process called autophagy. Um, and then we also have some patients that uh, are very high-functioning relative to the rest of the patient population. Again, there's no question what disorder they have, um, but instead of being, say, six to nine months old developmentally, they're out, you know, mainstreamed in school, uh, they can you know, walk, talk, sing, dance, use iPads. Use, I mean, it's very, very different from the rest of the patient population. So, of course, we're looking very carefully at, at, um, at their genetics to see, well, what modifiers did they just happen to get by, by a stroke of luck that changed this disorder so radically for them? Because um, you know, if there's a process that's upregulated or downregulated in them that's actually influencing the disorder, maybe we can find pharmaceuticals that will manipulate those, those pathways in all the patients. Um, so it's, it's, that's the kind of stuff that happens once you get lots of patients. Talked about these two types of screening. There's high-throughput drug screening and targeted screening. Could you contrast these two? Yeah, so uh, high-throughput screening is agnostic as to um, you know, sort of the, 
you know, the, the way something's going to work. You're just, you're, you're, you're just going to say, I'm going to try thousands or even millions of different small molecules in the hopes that one of these actually makes a difference. So uh, what you do is you come up with some test that recognizes when something's been improved. So usually this is the level of cells when you're talking about millions of compounds. You will have an assay that literally in our case, it will gl- glow fluorescent green if you have found a compound that makes a difference for the disorder uh, in, in terms of actually restoring deglycosylation activity. So, you know, what, what we could do is we could, you know, drop millions of compounds into millions of little dishes and check to see if any of them turn bright green. And if one of them turns bright green, we say, aha, that compound made a difference. And the thing is, we're not going to know why. We're going to have literally no clue why that, why that did that. We're going to, we could do some investigation and maybe find out, or maybe we wouldn't. Um, at, when you do a targeted screen, you may be screening you know, dozens to hundreds of compounds in a particular class because you have a theory of, of what's going on with the disorder. For example, you know, if we do think that autophagy is, is actually causing this disorder to get better, then what we would do is, is select compounds that are believed to increase autophagy and test those on cells with some assay for um, uh, autophagy-related activity. And if we see a difference there, then we say, okay, well, it looks like um, you know, we, we found autophagy-inducing agents, and if we have other assays for checking other mechanisms of, of harm, like for example seizures, then we could we could do a, a secondary, even more limited screen with the ones that pass the first screen. So you can do layered layers of targeted screening when you've got a specific hypothesis about why a disorder behaves the way it does. So you've also done what you call ad hoc crowd screening by communicating on platforms like Twitter and Reddit and Hacker News. How have you been able to leverage these social communities to get research done? Uh, it's actually, it's been phenomenal to watch this happen. So uh, some of our most interesting compound suggestions uh, and suggestions about potential mechanism of harm have actually come from social media. They've come from places like Reddit or Twitter. So early on, um, when uh, the blog post is going viral, uh, a, a, you know, a postdoc who worked on cancer um, made some comments, like some just incredibly insightful comments to the point where I'm like, okay, this guy clearly knows what he's talking about uh, on Hacker News. Uh, or no, I think it was Reddit or Hacker News. I can't remember which one it was. But uh, I, I followed up with him. He's like, yeah, I'm a cancer researcher. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm, this isn't cancer, but you know, you're trying to deal with these misfolded proteins. And I know a lot about molecules that could potentially uh, chaperone this, this protein and maybe help stabilize, stabilize it. So he made some very insightful recommendations on the, on the forum. Uh, and then I, I, I gut checked those with the scientific team. And they said, oh, yeah, that's actually a fantastic idea. We should try this out. And so uh, over the course of the, the, the past several months, we've actually reached the point now where we're starting to test his, this, this Redditor's hypotheses uh, in the lab uh, with, with real compounds. You know, again, all based on suggestions that he had been able to make. Um, and then over Twitter, you know, when we were discussing this, uh, my wife actually made contact with a postdoc in Texas who said, you know, I'm, I'm actually working on cystic fibrosis, uh, but I think that the same compound I'm developing for cystic fibrosis will also work for your son's disorder. In fact, it will work specifically for your son's mutation. Uh, it's, it's a mutation-specific uh, drug, so it could work for a variety of genetic disorders, not just, uh, not just cystic fibrosis or my son's. He said, would you mind sending me some of your son's cells? Um, so we, uh, you know, got him in touch with Dr. Freeze uh, out in San, San Diego and said, can you ship him some cells? Uh, he did, ran some tests, and sure enough, it looked like he was actually able to restore uh, a very small amount of protein expression at first. Uh, it, it 
to what levels levels that might have actually might actually be therapeutic, uh, and then after some optimization, was able to restore large amounts of the protein missing in my son. So that's actually turned into a startup uh, in the process of this of these discussions. You know, in between when we met on Twitter and and, and now, and uh, they're looking for you know early funding and might even have an IND approval within eighteen months. Where IND means it gives them the ability to start uh, looking at doing clinical trials for this drug. Uh, so that's incredibly exciting to think that, you know, a Twitter conversation led to cells shipped across the country, which led to two rounds of testing and incremental improvement of this compound, which may ultimately lead to uh, a clinical trial. There seems to be a transition happening uh, within the world of science, or at least I hope there's a transition happening to an increased level of communication, because I feel like there are some sectors of science that are like heavy research, basic science, where there are these silos that exist where people are uh, doing research on their own. They want to be totally isolated from other people because they don't want to be scooped. They don't want to have, they don't want to communicate with others aggressively. They don't want to use Facebook or social media or whatever, because you know, they might be scooped. And I see this as totally crazy because if you think of like the scientific population as a whole, if you risk getting scooped, that means that somebody else in the world is doing duplicate work and you should prevent them from doing duplicate work or stop doing duplicate work yourself. And so all that is to say is like, do you think there is an allergy to social media and sharing uh, to the same degree that the open source community of software has embraced it? Uh, it's it's uh, very different. Yeah, you're absolutely right that um, particularly in the biological sciences, uh, that there, there's a lot of siloization going on. Uh, and certainly even in computer science as well, there, there are some silos there as well. Although I think we're much better about sharing, um, uh, you know, code and data than, than we are in, in the, in the biological community. And there's definitely a sense. In fact, there was a, there was a recent editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine by some of the editors, uh, that said that, uh, those who would, would use other people's data if it were released openly to produce their own results are research parasites, uh, that was the mentality that, I mean, literally they, they use the term research parasite. It's so zero sum. Yes. It's a very, it's a very zero sum sense. And, and part of that is an art, it's an artifact of the way that we have set up the recognition of credit in science. So we have, you know, one unit, we, I mean, to, to maybe two units of recognition. So we have papers and we have grants and, um, you know, we, and, and even within a paper, you know, it starts to get fine grained because they're like, who's first author, who's the corresponding author. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, we, we, you know, we, you know, we need to make it more granular than an entire paper. Um, you know, and, it, it, and, and we have to have recognized ways of, of saying, look, this person has in fact made a meaningful contribution, but maybe it didn't turn out as a paper. Maybe it turned out as other people got papers because they built a tool or a platform that enabled them to do that. Um, we're just now starting to recognize artifacts in computer science. So there's there's new guidelines from uh, the from the CRA saying that when you're reviewing people for tenure, in addition to reviewing the papers they produced, also consider the software artifacts that they used. Uh, and how widely used those those software artifacts are. So, like, if you produce a, you know, a, a, a software tool that lots of other people are clearly benefiting from, then that should count uh, towards your scientific record when you're coming up for tenure. And um, but but you know, it's going to take a while. That that, that requires a, a cultural shift. So you know, 
I, I don't know what the exact solution is here, but we do have to find alternate ways of giving credit to people for what they've done um, and for the ideas that they have. You know, I, I think we'd be in a much better world if we incentivize all scientists to just dump whatever their hypotheses are out there right now. Um, so that you know, if, if two people have the same idea or they're doing the same thing, they can collaborate right off the bat and then um, you know, split the credit for that. So I want to draw towards a conclusion of this conversation. Uh, when I think about your experience, I think about the fact that as a human uh, in this constantly changing, unique set of circumstances that is the experience of being a human, I think we're all in this in of one situation. Like we all have our own unique genotype. Um, but the, the way that we're taught to think is in terms of the average circumstances, like, like you ended up running up against in the non-actionability of your clinical scenario. Do you think there's a philosophical shift that individuals should make, uh, maybe not even just because of not just thinking about like their medical circumstances, but thinking about their lives as a whole, should people compulsively think of themselves as an N of one, as an outlier, uh, as something that is un- so, like an entity that is unique and not bundled into the average population? Absolutely. No, I, I, I totally agree that regardless of your circumstances, we are all very unique. Um, you know, you know, even identical twins have different experiences, even if they share most of the same genes. Um, you know, so I, I think we all have to recognize that, you know, life is the ultimate N of one experiment. Uh, it really is. And you've, you've got to treat it that way. And, uh, I mean, honestly, there's, there's, there's no fun being average. Um, you know, I think we should all exploit the fact that we can be outliers if we want to. Yeah. And the, the writer, Tim Ferriss, uh, encourages his readers to approach this compulsively. And he says that, uh, you know, it's, it's helpful to perform N equals one experiments on yourself. And the axis that he suggests using to expand the sample size is time. So like you can test A on yourself one day and then test B on yourself the next day. Um, do, you, do you think this is a good approach to life to like try to uh, do A, B tests across time on a personal basis? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of a, a productivity nerd and I, I run experiments like this all the time where I'll, I'll try something out and see if it makes a difference or not. Um, and, you know, for the most part, the, the, the judgments you make about this are going to be, I think, pretty valid, uh, particularly if there's, a, if there's a large effect. Uh, the only issue with using time in yourself is that, you know, you, can, you can't be your same self two times in a row. Um, you know, you're, you know, from one week to the next, you're always going to have slightly different circumstances. Uh, but you know what you can, you can, you can sort of control for that by repeating the experiment over and over again. Uh, and this is actually something that happens a lot in rare disease where you're experimenting with individual medications where you'll go on and off and on and off to see if it's actually making a difference. Um, I and mean, we, we've certainly had to do that. I know plenty of other people that have had to do that. Um, and I think you can generalize that concept to almost any activity in life. If you get diagnosed with a condition or if a listener is diagnosed with a condition that makes uh, that listener a N of one case and is just running up against the uh, non-actionability of the medical community, what are some actions that uh, they can take to try to find a solution? Uh, Well, first I'll I'll insert a blurb to say that I'm writing a blog post on this exact topic. Um, 
So if, uh, if, if you don't know what to do, then uh, you know, I, I think you, you do want to try to find others. So I already have a blog post that describes how you can go find others uh, and, and repeat the same process I used for my son. In fact, I've helped many other families at this point do exactly that, uh, using social media to find other patients. Uh, but in terms of getting science itself done, um, I think that requires identifying uh, a collaborator you can work with to, to get you through those initial stages of education. So uh, depending on what it is, you need to do a literature search. So I would, I would head to, to PubMed uh, or to one of these um, expertise-driven search engines that lets you search for expertise across a number of medical disciplines so that you can find uh, the, the most closely incentivized collaborator uh, for, for you. You've spent significant time with biologists and doctors and computer scientists and other cross-disciplinary people. What are the similarities and differences between these sorts of fields? Uh, that's that's a fantastic question. Um, so uh, a lot of the differences are driven by the differences in the way we do our science. So when you're a computer scientist and you want to run an experiment, you write some code, and you run it, and generally you get an answer back pretty fast. You know, it, it, that's not always true in computer science, but usually you get an answer back very quickly. In computer science, we're used to a cycle of extraordinarily rapid iteration, where we just try something, might be quick and dirty, we see what happens, we modify it, we run it again. So you know, we, we can do dozens, maybe hundreds of experiments per day, um, you know, depending on what it is we're trying to do. In biology, uh, you may set up an experiment and let it run for three months, or six months, or longer. And if you got something wrong, um, well, guess what? You got to wait another six months. So there's a, this creates you know, a different culture between the two, the two fields. I mean, there's this, this uh, very creative hacker-like, um, let's iterate rapid culture in computer science. Whereas in biology, it's, it's more of a, we have very scarce resources. We must spend a lot of time planning how to deploy them in the first place. And so you spend a lot of time using intuition and judging hypotheses uh, because there's so many hypotheses that you could test, so many potential experiments you could run as a biologist, uh, but you know you're only going to get to run a handful of them, and you've got to pick the right experiments to run. Um, and, and there's also an element of luck to that, because you, you, you ultimately don't know what's going to happen, but you've got to figure out in advance some way of, of trying to guess what might happen. Um, whereas computer science, you could reasonably, in most cases, try everything. Do you have a unique piece of wisdom that you've learned along this uh, journey of diagnostics uh, and medicine and just your experience with your son, a unique piece of wisdom that we might not hear from anyone else that you can share with the listeners? Uh, I don't know. I don't know about unique. Um, I've, I've certainly learned a lot. Um, I, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, so here's here's the way I'll put it. If if I, if you if I could rewind eight years ago to when my son was born, and you had told me all the stuff that I would have to do from then till now, uh, I think I'd have, I would have just crumpled up into a ball, uh, and I don't I don't think I would have been able to do anything. And um, even now, you know, when I, I, I try not to think about too much about what I have yet to uh, what, what's left to do, I, I focus very much on on answering one question every day, and that question is what is the next thing I, I should do? Um, what can I do today to make progress for tomorrow? Now, it, it is definitely sort of a greedy algorithm if you think about it. <laughs> but um, breaking it down like that makes almost any problem conquerable. Um, 
and and it doesn't seem so overwhelming at the end. So I would say, uh, and again, I don't know how unique it is, but um, no matter what your task is, no matter how big it is, just focus on finding the next step and just do that. That's a great place to close off. Matt, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, I'm a huge fan of your writing and uh, your story is, is very inspiring. So, so thanks for coming on. Well, thanks. This has been a pleasure. 